Breadbox Media Programming is brought to you by... I actually met my wife on CatholicSingles.com, if you can believe that. Really? And about Yes, I had never done that before. Didn't have any problems with dating. Natalie and Aaron met on CatholicSingles.com after they realized that they needed to find someone who shared their faith. Meet other faithful Catholics on the original Catholic dating site. Download our app today for free. Looking for a way to build daily prayer discipline? Seen the rise in mindfulness meditation, but not sure if it is possible to meditate in a way that's consistent with your Catholic faith? Just looking for a way to breathe new life into your existing prayer routine? No matter what you're looking for, Hollow is here to help. Hollow is a Catholic prayer and meditation app that helps users deepen their relationship with God through audio-guided contemplative prayer sessions. From meditations on the daily gospel to the rosary to daily examines, Hollow has something for everyone. Hollow is the number one Catholic app in the U.S. It is free to download and has permanently free content, but you can also check out all of the premium sessions for 30 days, risk-free, by signing up at www.hollow.app/breadbox. Welcome to the Will Within podcast. This is your home for shared stories of hope, perseverance, will, and inspiration. Join us today as we share another story that brings to life the underlying beat of our lives. Consider us your virtual friends. Let's get inspired. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another exciting edition of the Will Within Podcast. I'm your host, Regina Pontus. I want to take a moment to thank you for all of your patience regarding the last several weeks. It is always my attempt to drop a podcast once a week, preferably on a Monday morning. But since Memorial Day, I have had significant computer issues. So I do have a couple of podcasts that really didn't work out well and didn't record right. And I've tried my best to try to fix them, but I don't think they're salvageable. So we're starting off fresh and new, and I'm talking today with Steve Ray, who is kind of the Crocodile Dundee, you know, the U.S. Catholic version of the Crocodile Dundee. And he is a great convert. His website is catholicconvert.com. He has a tremendous amount of audios and books and DVDs. He's known for his pilgrimages. He's taken over 200 to the Holy Land. First started going to the Holy Land, and then he's extended that to Fatima and Spain and Portugal and in Rome. So he's a very exciting person to talk to. He's got tons of energy. I'm looking so forward to having him talk today. So without any further ado, stop listening to me and let's listen to Steve. Welcome, Steve. I'm very excited to have you here, a defender of the Catholic faith, which says actually on your website, catholicconvert.com. I love everything you do. I love Thank the talks you. that you do and the pilgrimages. I really want to hear about the pilgrimages because I think that's an exceptional thing for people to share in their lifetimes. And I love your talks about your journeys with people and different experiences going through the Holy Lands on a jog. 
<laughs> in the morning job, that kind of thing. I love that stuff. So let's talk about that after you tell me about your uh, specific uh, conversion story, and then we can talk about your box philosophy and your um, the ship philosophy as well. Okay. Well, I, I'll make this short because I think a lot of people know my conversion story, but uh, I was born and raised in a Baptist family in 1954. That makes me almost 66 years old. And um, we were raised to love Jesus, to go to the Baptist church every Sunday, Sunday school, everything, and uh, had to learn the books of the Bible. So when I was about seven years old, I learned how to do this. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st Samuel, 1st Samuel, 1st Samuel, Kings, 1st Samuel, Chronicles, Ezra, Meastra, Job, Psalm, Proverbs, oh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Zika, Danny, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nehemiah, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. Those are the books of the Old Testament. But even if I made a mistake, most people wouldn't know it. Can I tell you a funny story? Yeah. When you're in third grade, I think I said the story before, but when you're in third grade, you learn the 50 nifty United States. And you have to do that because it was set to a song. I could memorize it so fast in a drinking game. If you're out in a bar and you want a free drink, say you can do that uh, in less than 30 seconds and then you win yeah. a free drink. So you yeah. could do that for the whole Bible. That's great. Yeah, we could. We had to learn that. But we were raised to be good Baptist kids. And my mom paid us 50 cents to memorize Bible verses. And uh, my dad died at 94. And my mom is still alive. She's 98 and a half. And they were married 73 years. And they gave us kids a very good schooling on how to be Christians, how to raise a family, how to be a husband and wife. After 73 years of marriage, they were more in love than when they met. So I have nothing but uh, love and admiration for the way they raised me as a Baptist. And even though I have found the fullness of the faith in the Catholic Church, I have not turned back on the many good things that I had gained and learned and loved as an evangelical Protestant. But that took place in 1993. Uh, People said, what was it that made you want to become Catholic? What was it that you saw about the Catholic Church that made you want to join? What was it you saw in Catholics that made you want to be like them? And I say, absolutely nothing. I didn't see anything good about the Catholic Church. And the Catholics I knew were good reasons not to be Catholics. But I saw the problems within Protestantism. That's where my journey began. And that's a whole hour discussion in itself. But we began to see the problems with Protestantism. First of all, what is worship? My wife said, I can't listen to a preacher preach for an hour and call that worship. We're missing something, but I don't know what it is. Uh, She is so insightful. So insightful. It is. My wife is smart. That's why I married her. She's pretty too. But uh, I've always said I, I'm lucky because I got the cake and the frosting too. There you go. But, but um, she said I can't just go listen to a sermon and call it worship. Well, we didn't know what we were missing, but it was a holy sacrifice of the mass is what we were missing. Mm. And what was the source of authority for? Me as an evangelical, it was the Bible alone. You, everybody picks up the Bible and they read it for themselves and they come up with their, find out what God wants and you join a church that agrees with what you think God wants and your interpretation of the Bible. And I said, that's not right. There can't be 33 or 40,000 different denominations. Jesus started one church. He said, I will build my church, not my churches. And then how many churches did Jesus start? And all these problems. And um, finally, in um, on New Year's Eve of 1993, we were some Baptist friends and they were trying to save us from our lunacy because they saw the direction we were going. And he says, I said to him, Jim, do you realize that if you and I saw Jesus 
died and raised from the dead, we lived back in those days that you and I would have never read the gospel of St. John. And he said, why not? And I said, because it wouldn't have been written in our lifetime. John's book was written about 100 AD. And if we were 39 years old when Jesus was buried and rose again, I said, we would have been dead before John's gospel was printed. And it's John's gospel that tells us how to be born again. How would we know how to get born again, Jim, without the book? And those are the generation that they died by eating by lions and they wouldn't turn back. I am a Christian and they are burned at the stake and killed with a sword. And yet they had the courage. They, they knew these. How did they know them, Jim, without the book? And then it wasn't until the end of the fourth century, 400 years, that the Bible was finally collected into one book. How did those Christians know how to live? Well, anyway, these are all the problems that we had. And on January 1st of 1994, my wife and I were reading. We have about 20,000 books in our house. And we had books out all about Mary and tradition and the church and uh, Eucharist and Jesus, everything. And about two o'clock in the afternoon, I closed all the books and I sat on the floor and I started to cry. And I, my wife said, Steve, what's wrong? I said, Janet, nothing's wrong. I just realized I'm a Catholic. And that's how it started. Well, that's, that's a beautiful story, to be honest with you. It's a struggle, but be, to get there is just an amazing journey that you share. So tell me a little bit about, we, we talked a little bit about Scola Scriptura. If you want to mention that a little bit, and also... Yeah, sola scriptura is simply, sola means alone, only, like, oh, sola mio. <laughs> um, sola, sola is alone, or a, no, not just one, and scriptura is Bible, so the Bible alone, that's what sola scriptura means. And I was a sola scriptura guy, that's what Martin Luther, he just said, I don't need popes and councils. I am my own Pope and council. And when he did that, he threw out the magisterium of the church. He threw out the tradition and he was left with the Bible alone. Let me back up a little bit. When Moses went up on the Mount Sinai, when he came down, he had three things. He had the written word of God in stone. He had the oral tradition that was not written down, but was practiced among the Jews, but it was not written down. That was the oral tradition. And he had the chair of Moses. It said Moses sat in his chair. He took his seat and judged the people. So you have a, a source of authority, which is like a three-legged stool. One leg is scripture written. One leg is the tradition. And the third leg is the chair or the authority of Moses, the magisterium, so to speak. Now, Jesus comes along, and the church is called the New Israel. We're the New Israel. So you'd assume that we're going to have a similar source of authority, that the authority structure would be similar to the old Israel. And sure enough, it is. The Catholic Church teaches that we also have a three-legged stool. We have the written word of God. We have the sacred tradition. And we have the chair of Peter, or the, more, the magisterium. Magisterium is a Latin word that means teaching office. Mm -hmm. So we have this written scripture, the tradition, and the teaching office of the church. So we have those three. Martin Luther came along and said, I don't need all of that. I'll get rid of the Pope. And he ripped one leg off the three-legged stool and threw it away. We don't need the tradition. He ripped that leg off and threw it away. And what he's left with is a one-legged stool, which won't hold up for anybody. That kind of dovetails right into the concept that you were talking about in one speech about the box. Can you go into the box and then the boat? Yeah, okay, I'll do the box. Uh, I, this illustration came up in a talk I gave, and it's on the Internet on YouTube. If you go to Steve Ray Life Site News, 
search that, I think it'll come up. And I had given a talk to a group with five bishops in it. It was a couple hundred people called, How Does a John Paul II Catholic Survive in a Pope Francis World? And one of the illustrations I used in that talk was a box that I made. I covered it with yellow paper and I put big red crosses on it. And I said, this is the deposit of faith. This represents, I should say, the deposit of faith. What does that mean? Well, when Jesus was here on earth, he taught his disciples and his apostles, and he gave them everything they needed to know about the Catholic faith, about how to get saved, what to do on Sunday morning, how to raise them, everything they needed to know for salvation was given to them, and it's called the deposit of faith. It's like a rich man who takes his millions of dollars and he deposits it in the bank for safekeeping. Jesus put the deposit of faith in the hands of the apostles, and they took it to the bank, which is the church, and they deposited that great, valuable deposit of faith. They deposited it into the church, which is the bank. And now the bishops are in charge of that. They're like the bankers. They give Can it I ask you a question? I don't mean sure. to trouble. Is sure. that the Council of Trent? Well, no, the Council of Trent didn't come until the 1500s. Okay, so, so how do these councils, like Vatican II and Trent, how it seems like they've either tried to take out or put in information into the well, box? What they're, doing, what they're doing is defining and understanding the deposit of faith. So let me explain it like this, Regina. In my movie I made on Mary, I'm sitting on a pedestal and I have a big red cabbage in my hand. And I, see, I like pictures. I like stories. That's how people understand things. So I'm holding this big red cabbage, and I said, let's say this represents the deposit of faith. Jesus handed this big red cabbage to the apostles, and over the centuries, they keep passing it on to the next generation. And century by century, we peel back leaves off of the cabbage. And the councils may peel two more leaves off. Then the council in Trent may peel two more. It's not that we're getting new truth or a new inventions we're understanding we're using the same deposit it's the same thing jesus gave us but we're peeling back levels layers of it so that we understand it more deeply what jesus gives is very complicated we've been studying it for two thousand years and we're still learning and understanding this wonderful deposit of faith that he gave us it's not something that just you give to somebody and they're going to understand it in two minutes it takes time and it takes meditation and so this cabbage as we peel leaves away you get deeper and deeper into that truth that's contained within that one big cabbage so in the, i said in the talk that i gave i had this big box and i said this represents that deposit of faith that's in this box and jesus gave it to his disciples and he said i'm charging you that you add nothing to it and you take nothing away from it do you promise yes we do so they took the box and they taught it and practiced it. They didn't add anything. They didn't take anything out, but they understood it more and more. And then they handed it on to the next generation. And they said, do you promise not to add anything to it? So every time a bishop is ordained, he takes a pledge that he will not add to or take away from that deposit of faith. And that's how I'd explain that all the way down through the centuries that this deposit of faith has been handed on in the church as the treasure. And I have a right to that truth. And I have a right to have it not changed or altered or messed with. And so that is what we talked about, the deposit of faith in the box. So let me ask you this. With the Vatican II and then people wanting, uh, with the Pope talking about possibly ordaining deacons, women deacons, 
and and the Pachamama statues that are in the Vatican and all that, how is he not going against what what's in the box? Well, you can priests and deacons and even the Pope can teach incorrectly. That doesn't mean that they're changing what's in the box. Okay, okay. But if the Pope decides to say today, define a doctrine or to say the church has always taught that only men can be priests, but I'm going to declare now infallibly that women can be priests now too. We're going to start ordaining women priests. Then that would be reaching his hand into the box and taking something out, adding something to it, or messing around with what's in the box. Meaning the he's only said, talking ex cathedra, right? That, can only we're talk talking ex- about where there's a very solemn thing called infallibility of the Pope. It's a charism of the church. Not only is the Pope infallible, but the church is. And it's a very serious matter. And the charism of infallibility is if the Pope decides to define a doctrine that is to be believed by all Catholic faithful, and he does it without a gun to his head, and he intends to do this as a pastor of the church, and it's only that he can do this in the area of faith and morals, not oh. baseball games or the weather tomorrow. Okay. So th- that is when the Pope speaks ex cathedra from the chair of Peter, when he speaks infallibly to define something, then it's no longer to be questioned. It's incumbent upon us as believers to believe it. Pope and Francis once says, it's in the box, another priest afterwards, another Pope afterwards can't change that, right? Well, because that if the Pope tried to change something like that, he can't because the Holy Spirit protects him from infall- right. infallibly teaching contrary to the deposit of faith. If he tried to do that, I don't know what would happen, but if, if something like that happened... The, the subsequent Pope would have to fix it. But I think the people of the church, the faithful would realize that that's not true and they would not accept it. But the Pope can't do that because the Holy Spirit prevents him from teaching officially and infallibly from the chair, anything that is contrary to the doctrine of the faith. But now the Pope may say tomorrow, well, tomorrow we're going to have a tornado in Mississippi. Well, that doesn't mean we're going to have a tornado in Mississippi. And if there's not a tornado in Mississippi, it doesn't in any way challenge his infallibility because his infallibility doesn't cover things like the weather and baseball scores. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Let's go on, if we can, to talk about the uh, Catholic convert. Once you became Catholic, and when did you decide to do this all full-time? Because you write books, you have a blog, you do pilgrimages, you've done a movie, you do videos. I mean, you're all over the place. You're great. You're wonderful to watch. You kind of remind me of the Crocodile Dundee of the Catholic industry, the Catholic <laughs> universe. That's kind of what I want to be. And I love it when I, <laughs> kids come running up to me and they want to meet me. And they think of me as the Catholic adventurer, like the crocodile hunter, Indiana <laughs> Jones. In fact, I got the nickname Jerusalem Jones. <laughs> And uh, if you go on a website and just type in Jerusalem Jones, it goes to my website. That's excellent. Because I want to, you know, I told my wife when we got married that I'd get older, but I was never going to grow up. I was always going to be a kid and be fun at heart and inquisitive and curious and adventurous. And I want to do that even until I'm 80 or 90 years old. And um, I think kids, that resonates with young people. But what happened, uh, Regina, was when I became Catholic, I had my own business. I started it out of high school with my wife, 
out of the dining room of our house. I started from scratch and I built up a business to a point that it was $12 million a year and we had 600 employees, no longer in the dining room of our house, obviously. Mm -hmm. And then when I converted to the Catholic Church, I lost interest in my company and I started being interested in teaching and writing and pretty soon I sold my business. And that gave me the freedom then to start. Um, and I never have written a book. I have five books, but I have to say I never wrote a book because none of them really were intended to be books. The first one, mm -hmm. Crossing the Tiber, is my conversion story. And I've had hundreds and hundreds of people tell me they became Catholic because of that book. But it was never going to be a book. My dad was so angry at me for becoming Catholic that he just clenched his fist and said, you must be sinful and living in sin and even think about being a Catholic. Well, I was so grieved because my dad was the best dad in the world. And I felt so bad. I said, I started typing on my computer, dear dad, you're the best father in the world. So I owe you an explanation. And I typed and I typed and explained to him why. And it became that book. So then people asked me if I'd come and speak and tell my story. And then they said, well, you come and talk to us about how a Baptist could understand the Catholic view of the Eucharist or of Mary or of Peter in the primacy of Rome or of purgatory. And all of a sudden people were asking me to come and speak. And then I took my family to the Holy Land the first time in 1995, the first time ever. And we were Catholics now. And it radically changed our life. It radically changed my kids' lives. And they said, we always knew this was true, but once we saw it and we felt it and smelled it and touched it in the Holy Land, we knew it was true with a capital T. And they said that really changed their whole life. And now they're four great, wonderful Catholic kids, and I have 18 grandkids from them. Wow. They're all awesome. married with wonderful Catholic uh, families and um, 18 grandkids. So I, when we went there, I thought, my wife and I said, boy, every Catholic should see this Holy Land. The year 2000 came, it was the year of grace. The Pope Paul had declared it the year of grace. And I woke up in the middle of the night, I think around March or something. I don't remember what month. I wish I could. And I just woke up in the middle of the night at two o'clock in the pitch dark and I knew exactly what I had to do. I had it all in my mind. It was like a vision or implanted. I don't know what it was. I don't want to be presumptuous, but it was just there. And I grabbed my wife who was sleeping next to me and I said, Janet, Janet, quick, wake up, wake up. We have to do a 10-part video series on the history of salvation from a Catholic perspective. Wake up. We have to make videos. <laughs> And my wife woke up and she says, oh, oh, what is the house on fire? Are you having a heart attack? She, I scared her half to death. And I told her and she said, Steve, we're we can't do that. What are you waking me up in the middle of the night to tell me that for? We can't even take good pictures. How does God expect us to make movies? She said, that's crazy. Just roll over and go back to sleep, which she did. I got up that night and for the rest of the morning, I typed out the whole outline for this thing. It had to be the whole story of salvation from Adam and Eve until till the fathers of the church, it had to be a travel log so people could see all of the places that they were real. It had to be a catechesis and apologetics, teach people to understand and defend the faith. And more than anything else, it had to be like Crocodile Hunter. It had to be fun. So in the movies, I wrestle with snakes. I ride motorcycles and horses. I climb trees. I fall in the mud, all these fun things. And then after we made, started making those movies, people said, Steve, we really like your movies, but why don't you take us in person to those places? So I said, really? Oh, that's an idea. So I put on my website, Steve Wright, Holy Land Pilgrimage. And I took my first one in 2005. And it was so much fun. Everybody loved it that now we take 10 pilgrimages a year, seven to the Holy Land, 
and some to Mexico, Poland, Ireland, St. Paul Cruz. We have a St. Paul Cruz coming up this September. I have four more pilgrimages to the Holy Land, July, October, November, December this year. We also do Ireland, Poland, um, Lords and Fatima, all these wonderful Catholic places. That's and that's wonderful. how it got started. Oh, my God, that's so exciting. I wish I was able to do something like that. That sounds like it's so moving. How are you going to deal with this pilgrimage now that the, the pandemic just hit? You know well, people are going to, they, they say, what, 20% of the actual population that can fit on the cruise can be able to go, or 40%? That, well, there, there's going to be, I don't know, I, I think it's become a lot of hysteria, to be honest with you. And I think, I think that the numbers coming out now are not justifying what they have imposed upon us. But I do know, like, for example, I was able to go to Mass yesterday and most of, the pew, most of the pews were all taped off with blue tape. Only 20 people were in the church that would hold 1,500. And it was just surreal. It was bizarre. And I know that when we go back to getting on airplanes, it's going to be different. They're probably going to take our temperature and you're going to have to wear masks. But I, we got a trip going to Israel on July 29. We almost have the bus sold out already. And we expect Israel to be open. They said they're going to be opening up their schools and everything this week. And my friends there tell me that everything's getting back to normal. Schools, businesses, restaurants. The freeways are full of people. The beaches are full of people. And the airlines are supposed to open up June 1st or so, June 15th. So we're hoping that by July 29th, it'll be open and we'll be get on a plane, have our temperature. We'll wear masks, whatever we have to do. And we'll take a pilgrimage to the Holy Land. And we'll... Hopefully it'll get back to normal soon. Yeah, with, the, with, the, with God's blessings, everything works out. So tell me a little bit about your perspective. When you go to the Holy Land, you said a story once about uh, jogging because you were losing some weight or something, and you told some people, let me show you a unique perspective of the Holy Land. Tell that story. <laughs> well, I, I was a runner my whole life. Until my knees gave out on me. I'm now 66 years old. And about eight years ago, my knees just, I was running one day and all of a sudden, boom, that was done. I could feel the pain. I could feel something like it was, I was finished. I went to the doctor. Sure enough, my knees are shot. So I can't run anymore. I can walk and do things like that. But I'll eventually have to have my knees replaced probably. But we, for my whole early life up until eight years ago, I ran. And when I was in Israel, I used to run everywhere because that's how I would explore. I would meditate. I would leave Nazareth and I would run to Sepphoris, which is where Jesus and Joseph worked during the day. And that was about a half an hour walk, a run, but about an hour walk. So I got a feel for Jesus and Joseph getting up before the sun and walking for an hour to work down in Sepphoris and working with stones and rocks all day long and then walking back over the hill to Nazareth another hour back. And I would run that route. I've run around the Sea of Galilee. Not all at once. It's 33 miles. You can remember that because Jesus lived to be 33 years old and then the 33 miles around the Sea of Galilee. I ran it in five different times. My wife would drop me off and I'd run another fifth of the way around. So, And I, I've run to from Nazareth to Cana. I've run up Mount Tabor, the Transfiguration. Everywhere in Israel I've run. But I learned a lot from that too. I remember, <laughs> this is a little bit earthy. I think this might be what you're referring to. 
but I was running one time in the morning and I forgot to bring toilet paper along. And every runner knows if you're going to get up in the morning, you need to take some toilet paper along just in case nature calls. Well, I was running along and all of a sudden I realized nature was calling and I wasn't going to be able to say no to nature. And I did not have toilet paper. And I, in desperation, I stepped into this big bush and I took care of business in that bush. And then I looked at the leaves. I said, well, I guess I'll use these to wipe with. And I picked some big leaves, hoping they're not some kind of Israeli poison ivy. And, uh, you know, they're saying that no job's complete until the paperwork is done. Well, I stepped out of that bush, and it just struck me like a thunderclap. That's what Jesus did every morning. Mm. They didn't have toilets in Jesus' time. When those 13 guys, Jesus and his 12 disciples, were walking along the shore of Galilee, one at a time in the morning, they'd say, oh, I'll, I got to step aside here. I'll catch up with you in a moment. And one at a time, including Jesus, the second person of the Trinity who came down from heaven. He was in the glory with angels, didn't have a physical body, didn't have to go to the bathroom, didn't have to sweat and get hungry and thirsty and tired. But he would have to step aside and say, hey, guys, just keep going. I'll catch up with you in a minute. I've got to step aside. By the way, in the Bible, when you use the word, you have to go to the toilet or the bathroom, it is they step aside. That's the oh, biblical okay. term for it, to step aside. And so Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, did exactly what I did. He had to step into a bush and leave, use a leaf. My leaves, my goodness, I thought, this is amazing. He would leave heaven and come down and do that. It's <laughs> called the scandal of the incarnation. And the only way I can get my grandkids to understand the import of that is to crawl on our bellies in a field and find an anthill and say to the kids, what's this? They say, anthill, where do they live? They live under the ground, Grandpa what do they eat? I don't know, but it's not, it's gross. And then I say, do you think you could ever love the ants enough to go down and become one of those ants? No, grandpa, we could never do that. Do you think you could ever, if you did go down, that you loved them so much, you'd be willing to suffer and be tortured and die for them and be buried in the ground? No, grandpa, we could never do that. And that's called the scandal of the incarnation. Can you imagine the angels in heaven when they heard what God was going to do? They looked at each other. They said, he's going to do what? He's going to do what? Go down and be one of them? Allow them to kill him and torture him and be buried? You've got to be kidding me. Even the angels, I think, were amazed that God would love us so much that he would do that for us. And I just, that all dawned on me that day when I had to step into a bush. So I, the land, being in that land is just an amazing thing because there's a certain incarnational sacramental aspect to it. It is holy ground. Jesus walked on it. He sanctified that land. And we call it the fifth gospel, gospel number five. We have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But when you walk in that land, it's like the fifth gospel, which make the other four pop out in widescreen technicolor. That is a beautiful way to put this. I'm going to make a little bit of a kind of a joke, but I was going to say, you put a new perspective on toilet paper run. Yes, that's true. <laughs> no, but seriously, that was a great story. Um, I don't want to keep you because I know you've got all kinds of things you're doing, but tell me a little bit about um, your next speaking engagements other than the trip and where they can find it. Usually everything is on Catholic convert.com was that correct that's my website catholicconvert.com that is like the hub of the wheel when you go to catholicconvert.com there's a big link to see my pilgrimages 
There's hundreds of documents I've written, arguments with Protestant pastors defending the Eucharist, all kinds of things on there. There's also hundreds of conversion stories of people becoming Catholic from Mormon, Jehovah's Witness, atheist, Muslim, whatever. Hundreds of stories of conversion. I have a store with all my movies, my books. I've got um, 10 movies and all the books I've written and about 50 audio talks on all of these topics. And so it's catholicconvert.com, it's all there. And I put up a blog every day. Today I put up a blog about how many denominations are too many. Because there's some estimates, there's probably 40,000 different Protestant denominations now. So I put up an article, how many denominations are too many, and, and the talk that I gave um, on And the blog site. is actually on your actual site, or is it? That everything's, on, everything's on my site, catholicconvert.com, yep. And pictures of our family and all the things we're doing. Um, so that's all there. Plus, you're all over the place on YouTube. I yeah, watch you, you all go, the time on YouTube. Yeah, if you go to YouTube and type in Steve Ray, there's a lot of my talks on there. Yeah, and so much I, fun. You know what? Have you ever decided to um, do any any kind of like monk debate? You would be fabulous for something like that. Well, you know, I I've been challenged by many to debate, and I just I felt that it was not profitable. I would rather teach these things because debates usually make a lot more heat and smoke than they do light. And um, they get, they can get very. But your perspective is so good. I mean, you articulate exactly what's happening. Well, I, I'll, I like to do it then by doing talks like with you, Regina, we'll do yeah. it again sometime too. And, and I, this is my fourth radio show or podcast today. <laughs> so awesome. I, I feel that that's a good use of my time more so than getting into debates. Yeah. Well, I loved it. I loved you talking to me. I'm going to be posting this online and hopefully we'll begin be able to get a lot of people to listen and more people can actually see you other than the millions that already do. So well, I'm good. so excited. I, my, a lot of my listeners are not Catholic, so this is wonderful. They well, get a good you. exposure to you. Thank you so much I, for being I, a I part of this. You. I love your story too of all uh, perseverance and all that you've gone through and still smiling and laughing and trusting the Lord. It's a great story. Oh, well, thank you. I appreciate that. You know, you know how you said about how you woke up your wife, same kind of thing with me after the stroke and I was uh, completely paralyzed. I woke up and I, at two o'clock in the morning and I heard write lessons learned and I called the nurse and told her to write it on the whiteboard. And then the next day you got up, I started doing kind of like an outline. I got my, the one hand I don't write with. I started doing that and writing in a complete outline. So I think these are God moments. They're divinely inspired when we get those. Yep. There so. are times in, in the whole perseverance story that you tell. Um, also part of that is to be open to the Lord because he may yes. ask us to do things that we think we can't do. I have no degree. I've never gone to college. I don't have a degree in videography or anything else. And yet we've made nine movies now that are being shown on EWTN and Netflix and everywhere. And I would have never dreamed in a million years I'd write books. But if you're open to the Holy Spirit, I, I liken it to this, and I'll, I'll, I'll let you go with this, but when the fishermen in the Sea of Galilee, the disciples went out, they couldn't catch anything, and they didn't know what to do. Jesus said, cast in your net. And I remember one, and they caught a bunch of fish. And I remember one time at Mass when I was thinking about this project that God had asked me to do. I think, you know, I would, I was sure he was asking me to do it, but I was scared to death to do it. And the readings of the mass that day were, and Jesus went, told them to throw their net on the other side and they caught the fish. And the Lord just said to me, Steve, you don't know anything about catching fish and you don't know anything about making movies or writing books, but 
you paddle out into the deep water, which is way over your head, it's mm. way out of your range, and you just let me bring the fish in. Mm. And I did that, and I've learned to trust the Lord and to depend on him and to trust him. When he asked me to do something, I don't say no or maybe. I say, okay, but you got to help me. Well, God bless you for being such an example, such a witness. You're amazing. Well, thank you, Regina. It's been good talking to you. May we do it again sometime. Oh, I'd love to. When you get it up. Okay, cool. Thank you. Many thanks to Steve for taking the time to talk to me. I love his energy. There's silver linings and everything if you look hard enough. And he is one of them during this pandemic. I had so much fun talking to him, and I'm so thrilled that I was able to at least salvage this conversation. So many thanks again to Steve. I hope we can do it again sometime. I look forward to seeing his trips. He always records them and uh, uploads some information, hopefully on Facebook and on YouTube, and we'll be able to see what's going on in his next trip to the Holy Land. So thanks again, everybody, for listening. If you like this, make sure you subscribe to this podcast and you tell all your friends about it. And if you have any stories you want to share or you think you have a story of somebody that you really think other people would like to hear, please email me at the will within podcast at gmail.com. Again, that's will within podcast at gmail.com. And I will be happy to talk to them. So until next week, with the grace of God and fingers crossed, my virtual friends and my family, be blessed. Looking for exceptional coffee delivered fresh to your door? We have the answer. Our friends at Grim Bean Coffee produce small batch artisan coffee using top tier coffee beans. The coffee is roasted when you order, guaranteeing the freshest coffee possible. Check out Breadbox Roasts, a new line of Catholic themed coffees available at www. Dot .grimbeancoffee.com forward slash redboxmedia. Experience coffee like never before.